Hello and welcome to the 2020 iteration of Leaves Festival of Writing and Music, Leaves On Air. This festival would usually take place at Dunamay's Arts Centre and other venues across Port Leash and County Leash. Current circumstances, however, forced a rethink about how we could best bring featured writers, musicians and our audiences together in a safe, engaging and entertaining way. Together with Leash Arts Office, we are delighted to now present a series of podcasts featuring our guest musician, our guest writers in conversation with festival curator Dermot Bulger. These were recorded recently over Zoom. For more details, see leavesfestival.ie and you can find us on all social media, Spotify and other podcast hosts. Leaves on Air is funded by the Arts Office, Leash County Council and produced and presented by Dunamay's Arts Centre. Welcome to the Leaves on Air podcast series. My name is Dermot Bulger. My guest in this episode is the writer Anne Griffin, talking about her acclaimed debut novel, When All Is Said, which was an Irish number one bestseller when published by Scepter. It has now been published in the USA, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa, and is being translated into 16 languages. It has been described by John Banville as a rare jewel, by Donald Vine as a usually enjoyable engrossing novel, and by Graham Norton as beautifully observed, masterful storytelling. Born in Dublin, Anne Griffin now lives in Mullingar. All of us have seen somebody like the narrator of Griffin's novel sitting on a barstool somewhere, but our eyes rarely bother to linger on such solitary elderly men sitting alone at a bar counter amid the bustle of a busy country hotel. But Griffin brings this man and his extraordinary story vividly to life in her superb debut, which won the Newcomer of the Year at the Irish Book Awards 2019. The Leaves Festival in Port Leash, from which this podcast series grew, is synonymous not only with great literature, but also great music. To introduce my talk with Anne Griffin, I have chosen two reels, The Maids of Mount Cicero and The Old Pigeon at the Gate, played by the great Waterford Piper, David Power, on his album, The 18 Maloney, available from his website, davidpowerup.com.
It's a huge pleasure to have you on the uh, podcast series because I've been a huge admirer of your book uh, ever since it came out. The funny thing is that when I began the book, I didn't think I would like it, but I actually <laughs> loved it. And of course, because it is, it, it, it's, the book is about an old man mm-hmm. sitting on a bar stool in a country hotel. And our eyes really linger on those solitary men uh, amid the bustle. And some ways, uh, Morris uh, Hannigan, uh, who's the narrator of the book, should be a stereotype. Uh, but he's real, he's engaging, he's compassionate. And he says about himself and about all Irish men, Irishmen particularly of his type, yeah. it's just when you get older. We tunnel ourselves deeper into our aloneness, solving our problems on our own. Men sitting alone on bastards going over and over the same old territory in our heads. So, I mean, what inspired, how did the story come about? We're going to start in a while. And like, how did you tunnel into this man's head? Well, he came very naturally to me, which um, surprised me. And the minute the idea of the book came to me, I knew it had to be a man. Um, and I knew he was going to be 84. Now I was, uh, you know, my father was 84 at the time. So I had an insight into that inner world um, of what the, what things matter to somebody at 84 years of age. Um, and I've always been drawn to the quiet men of Ireland. Um, I always find them, um, I, you know, I could sit watching men at bar, old, older men at bars, because there is something about my imagination, I, I sit trying to imagine their lives, the wisdom, the everything that has brought them to that moment. And I suppose like any writer or storyteller, I'm captivated by what is inside. And I suppose in my experience um, of life, um, I have been, and I think we all have, in Ireland and indeed around the world, being known these quiet men who sit at bars and um, men who can sit together at bars with their pints and not say a whole lot and the odd word. And, you know, I think I think sometimes of some Roddy Doyle's characters and I believe, yes, his new book, which I haven't read yet and it's coming out, um, is, is about an older man. But there is something about that, that. There is something about coming to that point in your life and having had this silence and this inner world that very often you do not let go of. And I find that, I find that amazing. And I find that intriguing. And I wanted to dig down deep into that world to find out, you know, what was behind this man's way of being and what is behind him on this particular night, particular night when he sits to the bar to drink his five toasts to five people. And I, I found the format fascinating and, and, and I, I found that uh, again the he drinks five toasts and those five yes. toasts change and they reflect his whole life because the first one is the cheapest drink in the bar it's an old-fashioned bottle of, of <laughs> chilled stout which we, yes. we super at home are advised not to try on the own unless under medical supervision 
and and the last end is an incredibly expensive um, mm. um, old uh, whiskey. What's the whiskey called again? Middleton. That's the Middleton, Middleton which is one, just yeah, which people at home shouldn't try unless on the supervision of a bank manager. And <laughs> exactly, and they, got so expensive. They, they capture his whole life in those in those five five stages. And yet, what I love about the book is that again, anybody else passing through the bar at night wouldn't notice him. And yes. would notice that this is a very, very significant night in his yes. life. And uh, again, th go through the five toasts that he actually sort of, um, that he picks. Because the five, it's, uh, the book is structured interestingly. It's almost like five monologues. It that is. Just five mm -hmm. different people. And through mm -hmm. these five monologues, we see his entire life. And yes. He toasts. Um, so... He toasts, the first toast, um, actually from which I'm going to read, is to his brother, Tony, who, um, Tony died when he was 21 and he had TB and Morris would have been, he was 16 at the time when he died and it was quite traumatic the day of the death and that, that is discussed in the book. But in, in Tony dying, he loses his best friend, essentially. So he loses his best friend very early on. Well, maybe rather before we go to a toast, if that's what you're going to read for, maybe I'll get you to read that, oh, that, great. That, that oh, that's that. lovely. Thank you. Um, so just to bring people up to speed on which point in the toast I'm going to, to read from, it's to do with, um, so Morris is dyslexic, but Morris, you know, being, um, didn't know this until he was in his 70s, because back then there was no understanding of what dyslexia was. So Morris's interpretation is he was simply thick. Um, so, and, and he, was, he wasn't necessarily told that. He actually had um, quite a positive experience in school in that the master was not a difficult master, but he certainly, he realized there was something about this child and he kind of let him, let him off with things, but Mars still struggled in school. So here we have, um, this scene opens with, um, Morris has just had a big, um, refusing to kind of go to school and he's in difficulty with his father and every morning after they had to pull me kicking and screaming from my bed my father was pushed to limits that were not naturally him get out to blazes your pup he pulled at me until there was nothing left in my grip of the leg of the bed and I gave way I stood crying in my nightshirt screaming the odds telling them I wouldn't go back my mother had to dress me with me holding my body as stiff as I could. I refused to take a crumb of food and went to school defiant and starving. Day after day, Tony walked by my side, still trying to encourage me. While my parents had long given up coaxing and pushing me out the door, Tony never stopped telling me I was full of greatness. People didn't really do that back then, encourage and support. You were more threatened into being who you were supposed to be. But it was because of Tony's words that I made that journey to school every day and suffered through the darkness when my brain felt exhausted from not knowing the answers. I didn't want to let him down, you see. Couldn't let him know that I knew I was totally and utterly thick. Even after he'd left school, Tony walked by my side every day to the door, enduring my silence. It was the only way I'd go. It had been his idea that for as long as our father could spare him the 20 minutes, he'd walk the road every morning. In the classroom, I never raised my hand or heard the sound of my own voice. I would sink so low in my seat that I was sure if you were standing at the back of the room, you'd think no one sat there at all. It took three more years before the master decided to walk the road to our farm. 
It was after school and I was already busy with the chickens. When I saw him in the yard, I hid behind the coop. My mother came out, wiping her hands and her apron, looking worried. They spoke briefly before she pointed towards the lower field to where my father and Tony were working and off he went. Tony came up not long after. What does he want? I asked, coming out from behind the coop and running alongside him as he made a steady pace towards the back door of the house. I've no idea. I was told to go back up to the house for tea. For tea? It's not time. It's not that time. It's about me, isn't it? I told you, Morris, nobody told me anything. I'm, I'm starving. Listen, I'll be out in a minute. Go on, you, back to the coop. I did as I was told and returned to lean up against the wooden slats to brood my way through all kinds of possibilities. The worst of which involved me being shipped off to some home for people who couldn't read one line of a book without breaking into a sweat. I walked in circles around and around, kicking at the chickens when, whenever one ventured out and got in my way. Don't worry, big man, it'll all be okay, Tony said, coming out after a bit, the remnants of my mother's soda bread still lingering around his mouth. But his eyes couldn't hide his concern, no matter how much he smiled. Whatever he says, Morris, it'll be okay. You know that. We'll figure this all out together, okay? I kicked at the straw, not able to raise my eyes to him. Big man, come on now. What is it I always say to you? I kicked again, refusing to be shaken from my silence. You and me against the world, isn't that it? Come on, say it, big man. Let me hear you. You and me. I mumbled, my head still down, the sole of my shoes scuffing the earth, not wanting to repeat his bloody refrain anymore. Because the truth of it was, there was no him and me in this war. It was just me and my stupidity. Against the world, he chanted. That's it. And he gave me an encouraging puck to the shoulder. We stayed in the coop until my father and the master came into view, walking slowly up the hill, deep in serious conversation. They stopped at the haggard wall to finish whatever it was occupied them. Then my father nodded, tipped his cap and watched him leave the yard. He looked over at Tony then and beckoned him with the tilt of his head. He didn't look at me, but simply turned back down to the field with my face in tow. Tony laid his hand on my shoulder and whispered, Remember what I said, me and you, and then fell in behind my father. An hour later, the whole family sat around the long kitchen table for our tea, to Tony showing no signs of distress at having to go through it all again. Master Duggan thinks you might be best work in the land, Morris, my father announced. Says you've grown grand and strong and that you'd make a fine farmer like your big brother here. Well, what do you think? You're not one for the books anyway, am I wrong? I left the second slip by, swallowing the bread in my mouth, imagining it slipping down my throat, sinking into the pit of my stomach. No, I mumbled in reply, not lifting my eyes from the plate. My, hair, my head nearly stuck in it. I was hunched that low. Well, good. That's that then. Your mother will make inquiries at the Dollard's farm and see if they're in need of an extra pair of hands. No school tomorrow. You'll work with us till something sorts itself out. My embarrassment hovered in the air between us, circling the teapot, the milk jug and the bowl of hard-boiled eggs. I found it hard to swallow any further, closing my eyes. I gulped at my tea, wolfing down my shame. Big man, Tony whispered later in bed as we lay in the dark. This is a good thing. School's not for everyone. The land now. That's a whole different story. See those hands of yours? That's what they're made for.
I lifted my hands to my eyes, trying to examine them in the pitch dark. I knew he was right this time, but still I'd wanted to be so much more for him, most of all. There we go. <laughs> that was beautifully, beautifully read. The irony is that he, he is so much more. Uh, yes. The, the Dalads are dastardly people. In <laughs> In the podcast after midnight, we changed the word vastly to something else, but 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 they are vastly <laughs> people. And the, the irony is that the the, the big house becomes yes. the hotel, which yes, and, and, and slowly, Morris. The great tragedy is that he winds up inheriting his own farm, his father's farm, because his, his brother dies. Which that's is, right. That's correct. But also, he winds up like so many. I remember in the tribunals in Dublin Castle, there was a description of one developer who'd gone over to England and he left school at fourteen. And mm. he was able to price jobs. There'd be other companies will come, you know, uh, yeah. do and they'd have all kinds of surveyors and everything else. And he would just walk this stretch of land yeah. and just give a price. He was able to in his Yes. People say, uh, people call football is stupid. But like yeah. the way that Wayne Rooney can tread a pass. Yes. Yeah. And again, Morris needs to find intelligence. The irony is that he winds up owning almost the entire village. Uh, he does. Course, he does. And so in some ways... Um, externally, his circumstances change, and yet his character never actually quite quite changes. No, uh, he still remains that that sort of character who is he, he still he loves his wife dearly, but yet he if they go out for dinner in a hotel, he doesn't want her to have tea or to have a scoop of ice cream. That, that that sort of meanness he never actually is just in inbred in him. Yeah, yeah. Is he is part of him still that boy at that table feeling shame? Yeah, he. I mean, Morris is full of shame about about what he cannot do um, because of his dyslexia. Um, but he he thinks obviously he is stupid, so he carries that through his life. But he is an incredibly strategic man, incredibly intelligent, um, and you know his story reflects that story of so many people um, who grew up with dyslexia um, during those the, that period in time when we weren't as aware of how people learn differently. Um, and so he he carried that burden, and he kept that burden. He never told his wife. He never told his son that he had dyslexia. He never told the world. Nobody needed to know. And he, he navigated his way so cleverly, so sharply through the world. Um, and he was, yet yeah, money was very, very important to him. Um, and perhaps that came from poverty. Um, perhaps that came from having to work for people like the Dollards who were, who had their own issues and were incredibly cruel, particularly the son was inc incredibly cruel to Morris. Um, but their story also comes out through the book. So we kind of try, we, we get to see why. And the story comes out uh, in almost a metaphor of, of a mythical kind of dealing with yes. the kind of, 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 of Henry the Henry the uh, Edward the Eighth. Edward the Eighth. Edward the Eighth. Yes. So of Wallace. That, that, that he actually refused to turn his face in the normal profile. Oh, that was brilliant. Uh, and actually, yes. And then, of course, the actual kind was never released because he abdicated. Uh, That's right. That I was, was, sorry, sorry I Edward VIII, when, when he was in France and one of his friends sent a plane to rescue him, he arrived with, with loads, of, loads of luggage. And he answered, but the luggage won't all fit in the plane. And uh, he said, what do you mean? Are you coming back as well? <laughs> <laughs> so he had this very, very, and the Dollards live in this world as well of yes. 
it. And it's so reflective of so many Irish villages where there was a big house yes. and where there was a small family and where that the, 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 the swing of power changes over 50 years. So this yeah. And that was... It was really interesting doing that. Like this story does span um, Morris's 84 years. Um, and it was really interesting looking at the changes in um, Irish society in that time. And Morris's life kind of reflects the changes in Irish society. He, he goes from peasant effectively and, and worker for the big house to owner of everything. Um, and, um, that was that I, I, I loved doing that. Um, and I loved in particularly then the coin, the, the threading of the coin throughout the story. Um, so throughout the five toasts, the coin reappears and, you know, you begin to see this, this, because Mars steals this coin um, when he is 16 and, and he no holds sense it. of what it's worth. No, no, no sense, no idea. And no idea of the consequence of the theft of that for the for the Dollard family and for the son in particular who had been so horrible to him. Um, and so it kind of reappears um, throughout the story. And I yeah, I loved it, the research around that. I am I'm a history graduate anyway. So uh, I, I, I really enjoyed looking through um, you know the story of of Edward. I mean, we're all obsessed with Edward and Mrs. Mm -hmm. Simpson, aren't we? In a way, um, and and their story gets repeated throughout the the monarchy's history with different people coming in and out of the family there. But um, uh, so yes, it was really interesting looking at the ego that is attached to to this king or this king that abdicated and and that that generation uh, that, that that class that that white was themselves by their own ego in, in some exactly way. too high taxes <laughs> yes the, but you know grief is something that Morris wouldn't deal with externally again yeah. and so the second toast is to something that was happened in almost every Irish family because you know children were you so many children were born because not all children survived and yes. the second post is to his uh, stillborn daughter. Uh, and, and that's a very moving, uh, stillborn daughter, Molly. And, and that's a very, yes. very moving, moving piece. Was that a hard piece to write? Um, yes, it was in ways. And what I wanted to do there was I really wanted to give, um, to look at how men dealt with, um, you know, children dying and 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 a stillbirth, um, because very much and naturally so and rightly so, the the grief is usually very much focused on the mother, and the mother's experience, and we do see some of that for Sadie. But I wanted to get this sense of well, how does this quiet man, this man who is unable to communicate his emotions, deal with something that big? Um, and um, it, it is a very, very moving piece. And I, I often I, I read from that particular piece because it, because it is so, so moving. Um, I, even for me, sometimes rereading it. So, yes, it was difficult, but it was very beautiful as well in other ways because it shows the depths of emotion um, of us as human beings and how we deal with loss. And um, particularly for a man who is so used to keeping everything inside watching how it came out and its dribs and drabs and watching his guilt around it too because he 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 keeps he feels an awful lot of guilt and he carries that guilt with him um, and, and someone who, who doesn't carry things inside her a lot is the toad toaster sister who's disturbed uh, <laughs> sister-in-law 
Noreen, who at right. the time we said we were suffering from melancholia and is going yes. to an asylum but comes home and visits and is a great gaiety of life. And, and again, Love her. My, my family has someone like that and so many families have. And again, it was interesting in a way that dyslexia was understood, but also people with, 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 with mental health problems weren't understood. And yet yes. this, this should be a really sad chapter. And yet she's very joyous and, she, and, and full of mischief. She's, she is a character and she is somebody who manages to reach into Morris's heart very, very quickly. Um, and she is upset. And in fact, it is her who brings the, 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 the coin back to life and kind of reminds Morris that he, she, she's obsessed by coins. What she does is she collects shiny coins and she finds, she's, she unearths this coin from the drawer that, uh, and, and Morris is looking at it going, I completely forgot I stole that when I was 16 years of age. But she has this this joy of life that is infectious and and Morris is really drawn to it and they both and she's very drawn to him and they have this this very special relationship throughout their life um and also Morris feels that it was it was that connection that gave him the acceptance in Sadie's family because once her mother and father saw how well he treated Noreen and how much Noreen was attached to him that was it he was accepted into the fold and he supports Sadie the wife throughout her life as she struggles with having this little sister who has always been uh, who she loves dearly but has always been I hate to say the word burden, but sometimes she felt that and she felt the guilt of even saying that word. Um, so it, it is, and I had great fun writing that, I have to say, because she is such a character, you know? So it, it, was, um, it was one of my favorite characters to write. Um, a lot of people are very touched to Tony and Molly as characters, but um, Noreen, Noreen and what she went through um, in, in the institution and the, the, the place in which she lived. Um, I just have a lot of time for her. And, and how, and how she's, she survived it internally, yeah. she survived her, her spirit after life. We'll skip a toast and we'll go to the fifth toast, which is to his beloved wife, uh, Sadie, yes. whose death, death is two years previously, but it's still totally raw and he's still yeah. in the throes of grief uh, yes. because he's built this sort of empire almost without ever spending money without so he, he, he hasn't given Sadie a bad life but he hasn't no ever, uh, although one part of his brain is able to do incredible business deals yes able to simply walk out how to sell parcels of land how to, he, in that another part of his brain emotionally just thinks this is what we have for dinner this is what we have for tea this is what we have for tea and why would we be having a beginning to realize that this he maybe he didn't give Sadie the life she deserved exactly and and again this is another guilt that he is carrying with him on this night and gets expressed um and um yeah I mean he is the man who says sure why would we be having a cup of cup of tea in a hotel after the dinner when we've got a kettle at home you know (laughs) very very logical um and um so he does feel the guilt and he does. And so this toast is him saying, I am sorry mm-hmm. to her. Yeah. Um, and it, indeed, this book in a way is, is a love song to her. And it's also a love song to his son, Kevin, who, yeah. who he addresses the whole book to actually in his head. Um, but it um, is very um, much... Kevin, because Kevin, Kevin is, the, is the fourth of us. And Kevin has left me. He, he's now a journalist in America. That's so right. He's very, he's very close to his father, even though his father doesn't quite know, I almost understand why 
Kevin should feel this way. Exactly. He does. Yes. And the tragedy is that I mean, he's incredibly erudite in his thoughts to his son. The novel yes. is heartbreaking, mostly accurate words. He tells his son everything. Yes. He tells his son nothing because all this is expressed in the silence of his heart. And all his okay. son will know is that Morris is going to wake up dead. Yes. And he will never know. And, 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 that's where, and that relationship with the father, uh, who's very, very proud. And, and this odd thing of that they're linked by journalism, but yet yes. Morris yeah. can't actually read. Exactly, and exactly. That's yeah. a great difficulty, you know. Yeah, the, um, and that was, um, that was one of the things. Okay, so, so Morris feels, feels a separation from his son that, that he's always put down to, I suppose, his guilt around Molly's death and then that he should have been joyous um with with Kevin's arrival and he was but he always I think had a worry and he just that guilt that um you know around Molly it seems to dampen down whatever it is or, or cause this separation mm-hmm. between him and Kevin and then Kevin is not the farmer that that uh, that uh, Morris thought he might be and f- instead he turns to words the very thing that Morris cannot do and has held secret all of his life and so he if he feels nothing but shame that if ever his son should find out that he can't read and he's a great man for losing the glasses and he's a great man for saying the print on that's too small if anything is put in front of him and he's brilliant at that because he is a a strategist um and um but he he wants to tell his son there is a huge part from wants to tell his son look this is who i am and i am sorry i am sorry i couldn't live up to being the father i should have been mm-hmm. so he is great i mean for a man who says very little to the world he has great understanding of who he is but he carries this awful guilt around it mm-hmm. um and i think that is the that is the tragedy and i think you kind of almost fall in love with morris a little bit because you just you see your humanity so much in our um our vulnerabilities and our flaws i mean he is a flawed man there is no doubt about it and he knows he's flawed and he's guilty and he wishes he wasn't and how many of us don't every day think oh god i wish i wasn't like that about this particular thing so it's on this particular night he is just that's what he is there for. He is there to look back at his life. And in a way, he's trying to make recompense, but in a very, very strange way, because he's not, Kevin isn't sitting there. No. Sadie isn't sitting there. And all of these people are not sitting there. And yeah. so, so I heard somewhere that the book came from you meeting a man in a bar. That's right. Yes. Yes. Is this a true story? It is. It is. Now, it was a very, very brief meeting. I mean, we're talking about a minute or two. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Uh, w- it was actually over in Mayo and um, we were in um, Newport, the, the village of Newport. And we'd gone in, myself and my husband and my son, and we'd gone into the bar of the hotel and there was no one there. We were looking for food. And um, there was just this, this one man standing at the bar with a pint of Guinness and he immediately came over to chat to us. Um, and I was a bit hassled, a lot going on. I was trying to figure out with my son, oh, what do you want to eat? You know, when you get just hassled. Um, but he started to talk and, and um, in the couple of minutes he was with me, he, he said two things to me. He said, um, I used to work here when I was a boy. But I didn't have the wherewithal to kind of say, well, what, what, what did you work up? Because my brain had immediately gone to, writer's brain had immediately gone to, 
wow, here he is after all these years. So has his life come in full circle and, you know, or has he always lived here? So I was immediately imagining his life. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then someone else came into the bar and yeah, I often say, and they obviously must have looked a lot more interesting than me and my husband did, or, you know, because he was like, he was making a beeline for them. But somewhere before he left us, he said, and very often people say, oh, that's only because he wanted a pint out here. But um, he said, um, you know, I'm not going to see the morning. Mm -hmm. And off he went. And that, that, that's in my memory, off he went. And I was kind of left with that kind of jaw dropping moment where you're going what the hell does that mean mm. and i didn't even discuss it with my husband at the time i remember i just stored it away a bit like mars stored it all away in my head and the next day we're 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 cycling over to Acre. well actually i cycled over to Acre because it was a really really bad rainy day and um the lads didn't cycle i cycled it and i really wanted to cycle it on my own and i was the only person on that greenway and it was wonderful because there i said I have found my story. I realized I had found my story. And, and on that journey, um, I came up with this because I was a very young, young writer. I mean, I was, I was 40. I caught, can't remember what age I was, but, but I, young in terms of I'd only been writing a year or two. You were Jennifer I, Johnston in, in terms of the time she started. Part, say that again? Jennifer Johnston. Ah, indeed. Sometimes writers begin, quite, begin later than others, you know. And I, think, and I think that's okay because each of our journeys, and, and my, like I wouldn't have changed my journey mm -hmm. to that point because mm -hmm. it makes me the writer I am. Um, and I'm not, I think I would have been an absolutely crap writer if I'd been trying to do it at age 20. That's mm -hmm. not to say people aren't, I mean, Sally Rooney, all of the rest, you know, they're all, you know, niche done. They're all fantastic writers. But for me, I needed that length of time and that journey. Um, so as a young writer, as a novice writer, let's say, or um, uh, however you want to put it, I thought, you know, I, I really want a good structure on this novel so that I feel, um, I feel I can do it, that I'm not looking into the abyss of 80,000 words and kind of going, oh, and it could meander everywhere. I wanted a nice structure. And I liked the idea of splitting it up into those five, as you said, monologues, five stories, five, you know, really nicely protected in that. So I could, and I it, could write it. It's quite a clever way to write because I find that when you begin a novel, you're terrified of the whole journey. And if you break yes. the journey down, there's a yes. sense of achievement. Uh, you know, so you, you have these five senses of, of, of achievement. We're coming towards the end, end of our chat, which is pretty because I would love to talk to you about this novel, <laughs> novel, novel forever. But well, when you were on the Greenway on your bicycle alone, yeah and suddenly this man entered your head and you knew yeah. that he and although the character would become an amalgam presumably of all kinds of people you've met over all the Obviously. years all yeah. but he's in some ways he's a very archetypal Irishman but when I look at um, Waiting for Godot I always yeah. think that it's set in Wicklow and then people in France think it's set in France and people think <laughs> Yes. So you can actually have someone who's very 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 parochial and yes very very universal but yes. did you have any sense that you were writing something that would wind up being translated into numerous languages and would resonate with, with people who would never set foot in Ackle in Ireland anywhere. Yeah. No. And I don't know if any writer ever does have that sense of this is going to reach the world. But I, and I, I, anytime I get an email from someone at the far end of the world um, saying, so loved this, you know, was with them, felt like I knew this man, 
I always reply, reply by saying, it still amazes me. It still amazes me that that can happen. And Morris is terribly universal because people write to me from Australia, from South Africa and say, I know this man. He is my uncle. He is my, he's my grandfather. He is, he's my brother. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, um, so he is terribly universal. We are all flawed. We are all human beings with terrible traits and, and you know, that, that we live with and, but we're also full of love. And that is the thing about Mars. He is full of love. And like so many of us, we don't, we aren't able to express it. I, I again, I think the reason at the first, at the beginning, I said, oh, I don't like this character. Yeah. I knew him so well. And <laughs> I didn't want to go on a journey I knew. And that journey was so rewarding. And so, and oh, it, 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 was, it also a great novel to read during a pandemic. Because <laughs> <laughs> And so it's been my only regret that we, we never got to do this conversation in person in, in Port Leash at the Leeds Festival because Indeed. I'm sure you would have brought a bottle of Middleton. Oh, yes, I would have, yes. That would have been such fun. But yes, it's been, I bring it everywhere it's with me. Yeah. fun talking to you. And, <laughs> uh, and, and it's Wonderful. that really everybody deserves to read. So Aww. thank you very much for coming on our podcast. And good luck with this book and with all the future books you write. Thank you so much. And thanks for all of the support you've given me in the last couple of years because it's been really, really appreciated. Thank you, Anne. Thank you for listening. For more, see leavesfestival.ie or dunamaze.ie. Leaves on Air is funded by the Arts Office, Leash County Council, and produced and presented by Dunamay's Arts Centre. We look forward to presenting further podcasts over the months ahead. Dunamay's on Air will showcase artists and performers we are sure you'll love to hear from and learn more about. See dunamay's.ie for details.